Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 17. We're looking at some prayers in Scripture and uh, hopefully uh, asking the Lord to give us a greater burden to pray and a, a greater uh, realization of the importance of prayer. And so John chapter 17 is the Lord's high priestly prayer. We will not look at the entire uh, chapter this morning. There are times when the Lord spent long hours in prayer, but his public prayers that are worded in the Bible are very short. The longest prayer of Jesus that the Bible records, his words, are found in this chapter, John 17. It takes about three minutes to read. It's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's High Priestly Prayer. It's generally divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for the glory of God. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. I don't know about you, but if you've ever prayed with somebody and they start praying about something that you have worded as a request, my ears pick up, my heart is encouraged when I hear someone else praying about a need that I've worded. And I can't but imagine that these disciples are, are hearing the Lord pray about them, and I'm sure they wondered, what will he say? There's so much that he could say. I'm, I'm sure Peter is going through all of the mistakes that he's made and thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't bring that up. And what a wonderful prayer that we have recorded here where the Lord thanks God for their work, for their faith, for their obedience to the word. So we'll take our time as we go through this chapter, but this morning we'll probably just look at the first five verses, Jesus prays for the glory of God. John Knox was a leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, and he spoke out against the false teachings of the Catholic Church that salvation was earned through keeping the sacraments. He was known for his bold preaching, he was known for his earnest praying, Queen Mary, who was Catholic, said, I fear his prayers more than I do the armies of my enemies. John Knox, when he was dying, asked his wife to read this chapter to him. 1527 was the year. This is the prayer that gives great assurance of salvation. And he claimed that here was where his first anchor was cast. After he listened to the prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17 on his deathbed, he seemed to forget his weakness, and he began to pray. He was interceding earnestly for his fellow, fellow men. He prayed for the ungodly who had rejected the gospel in his preaching. He pleaded for people that had recently been converted. He requested protection of the Lord's servants, many of whom were facing persecution. And as Knox prayed, his spirit went home to be with the Lord. What a way to go. Well, Jesus prayed this, prayed this prayer, looking at the context. We go all the way back to chapter 13, and we see where he's washing the feet of his disciples. And then, this is all the night before his crucifixion, in chapter 14, he told them that he would be leaving them, and he was going to prepare a place for them, and he was comforting them in that departure in those words. He told them that he would come again. He told them he would send another comforter in chapter 14. In first, chapter 15, he said that 
he was the vine and they were the branches and that they were to abide in him and bear fruit. He gave the commandment to love each other. He told them he would, that they would be persecuted in chapter 15, verse 20. Then in chapter 16, he told them about the work of the Holy Spirit and how they were to pray to the Father in his name. And then in chapter 17, we read these words, Jesus praying for the glory of God. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. We notice first the direction of this prayer of Jesus. He prayed to his Father in heaven. He spake words. It says in, right at the very beginning, these words spake Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus spent much time in prayer. Let me just list a few of the times that we have uh, recorded in, in the Bible of his praying. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he fed the multitude, both times, the multitude of the 5,000 and 4,000. He prayed before he chose the 12 apostles. He prayed when he was transfigured. He prayed all night on a mountainside. Luke 5.16 says he withdrew into a wilderness and prayed. And we find that phrase often throughout his life. He prayed when the 72 disciples returned from their ministry. He prayed at the graveside of Lazarus. He prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. And how precious were those prayers of his while he hung on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For most of these prayers, we don't have a record of what he said. We don't know the content of the prayer. Here in John 17, we do. And we listen to the great high priest praying for his own, praying for us. His disciples heard the words of his prayer. Uh, Godet, in his commentary, says, He didn't pray aloud to show them how he prays but to associate them in the intimate communion which he maintains with his Father and to induce them to pray with him. He lifts them to the divine sphere where he himself lives. His words were specific. Specific prayers are answered in specific ways. We've often said that about prayer. When we pray and when God answers, two things happen, at least two things. Number one, God gets the glory. We pray, we word a request, he works, and we look back and say, God did that. And he's to be glorified. He's to be praised in that answer. Second thing that happens when, when we pray specifically, our faith is strengthened. The things for which Christ prayed in this chapter either have been answered or are being answered or will be answered. He wants us to pray with words. Now, God knows our thoughts, 
And there's nothing wrong with praying silently. In fact, sometimes when you're in a, a, a big group of people, that's a wise thing to do. But I found that if I can get to a place where I can pray out loud, I'm less prone to wander in my thoughts. I'm more aware that I'm, I'm carrying on a conversation with God. I'm communicating with him. By praying out loud, we learn to pray together. We have a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We have men's prayer on Saturday morning. And we pray in groups. And one man prays, and then the next man prays. And what do you do when someone else is praying? Well, I'm just composing my thoughts, hoping he doesn't get the request that I was going to pray for, and so I'll have a good prayer too. That's not what we do when others pray. We, we pray with them. We join our hearts with them in prayer. We add words like amen when there's a, when there's a request that we're, we're behind and we're agreeing with what is said. That's what corporate prayer is. We don't just listen to someone else. We join in prayer. You might say, well, I, I really don't know what to say. I'm not good at praying. <laughs> praying is just talking to God. John R. Ray said prayer is asking. We're good at that, aren't we? <laughs> Don't worry about how you word things. Just come to God and talk to him. Ask him for things. The Holy Spirit will help you pray. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, let me just turn there a moment. We have a great verse here that tells us how the Holy Spirit helps us when we pray. And as I was reading that verse this week, I, I came across that word helps, and I, I always like to look up the words to see what they are in the original. And, and this, is a, this is a mouthful for the word helps. I like it in English better. It's soon ante lambanamai. It's with, against, or in opposition to, and carrying. It's a word that describes a person who helps someone else by picking up a load that they're on the other side of and they carry it together. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in this verse. And we know, um, verse 27, and he that searcheth the hearts, sorry, I'm, I'm there, verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself, or himself, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We don't always know what we're to pray for. And so the Spirit intercedes for us. He helps us with, with these groanings that words cannot express. So while we're praying with words that are understandable, the Holy Spirit translates those requests to the Father with all the empathy and all of the, of the meaning that he knows our hearts are wording. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus also intercedes for us. When you pray, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in that prayer. The Spirit and the Son interceding for us as we pray to the Father. Paul says something about praying with an understanding, that is, with words that we use that are understood. He's, he's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, and, and particularly the gifts that are used during a public church service. Uh, and he says, uh, as, we, as we use our words in praying and in singing, they need to be understood by others around us. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. 
and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. And so we, we word these requests as Jesus worded this, these words to the Father in his prayer. Jesus prayed with words, so do we. He lifted his eyes to heaven, verse 1. We read the next phrase, and lifted up his eyes to heaven. Most of the time when, when we pray, and I was taught this as a little child growing up in a pastor's home, that we close our eyes when we pray. And of course, when you're told to close your eyes as a child when you pray, you have to open them to see if everybody else has their eyes closed. <laughs> and you have to tell on them if they're not. We waited until amen came and he was looking. Yeah. Why do we do that? The bowing of the head is a position of humility, of meekness, of, of coming to God in a worshipful position of reverence. The eyes closed keep us from distractions. But there is nothing wrong with praying with your eyes open, especially when you're driving. Uh, but we need to pray sometimes with a gaze toward heaven. That's what the Savior did here. You know, we had a deaf church in Los Angeles, and, and there people have to watch to see what's being said. We still use words with signs, but it's the person who prays who closes their eyes, and everybody else who's listening to the prayer watches. And so there's nothing wrong with watching. We need to have a heavenly focus in our prayers. Jesus wasn't distracted. He was looking to his Father. And we need to have that focus. Our answers don't come from, from this earth, from people. Our only hope of an answer to our prayer is from heaven. The psalmist said in Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Don't think so much about your posture in prayer as you do that you're entering into the presence of God. You're pouring out your heart in praise, in petition to a God who wants you to come there and spend time with him in prayer. Well, when you understand that, then you can be standing or sitting or kneeling it's the importance that what you're doing, whom, to whom you're talking, what you're communicating with him, and that he's listening. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, several words in this section that talk about prayer, and I hope we'll, we'll spend some time in this passage as well. But Paul said, be careful for nothing. That is, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And notice next, and said, Father. The first words from the Lord's lips in this prayer were Father. And throughout the prayer, he uses the, this, this name for his father five different times. It's very difficult for me to comprehend what it would be like for the son praying to the father. And yet he spent so much time in prayer. There's only one God. 
and yet there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. We identify in our human relationships with a child coming to his father and asking for something. We saw that last week when we looked at Matthew 7, 7. And, and in Luke, if you being evil know how to good, give good things to your children, how much more shall your father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And we, we, we come with that understanding in that, in that word father. And so he's doing that. He's coming to his father. So the direction of his prayer, he prayed to his father in heaven. The timing of his prayer, he prayed, as the hour had come, he says in verse 1, the hour is come. The time of his death was drawing near. In John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, Mary came to Jesus and said, they have no wine. They ran out. And he answered, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He was being polite. We've looked at that passage before. But he was saying, now is not the time. Mine hour is not yet come. In John 7, 6, his, his brothers wanted to know if he was going up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said the same thing. My time is not yet come. John 7, 8. I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come. In verse 30 of the same chapter, they sought to take him, that is the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the, the officers. They sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. John 8.20, these words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. And so we see that throughout the Gospel of John, and now in this chapter, chapter 17, the hour has come. The word hour can be a literal hour that we would normally think of as 60 minutes, but it's also used for a period of time. And I think this was what Jesus is saying here. The time has come when I will go to the cross. It will be the next day as he's praying. He's going to die for the sins of the world. That was his hour. So the direction of his prayer to his Father in heaven, the timing of his prayer, it had come, the hour of his, his crucifixion, and the purpose of his prayer. He prayed for the glory of God, and we see that at the very end of verse 1, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Glorify thy Son. The Son would be glorified by suffering for our sins, by offering a sacrifice that God accepted through the resurrection of Christ from the grave and, and the restoration of his position at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. The Son would be glorified. But notice the request that he has for the Son to be glorified is so that the Son also may glorify thee. The Father in heaven would be glorified through, through the obedience of Christ, through doing the will that the Father had sent him. We see that word sent often in Scripture, especially in the Gospel of John. He was sent on a purpose, on a mission. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you, he told his disciples. He was sent. He was accomplishing the work of salvation. And so that the Son also may glorify thee was doing the work that he was sent to do. And that's seen in the next three verses, verses 2 through 4 of John 17. 
The Father is glorified because, we'll look at several reasons here, because he is the one who gave Jesus authority. As thou hast given him power over all flesh. Now there are two words for power in the, in the Bible that could be used here. There's a word that we generally think of, it's used in 142 verses in the Bible, of dunamis, strength, force, might. But here he uses a different word, exousia, and that word has to do with the right or the authority. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, exousia, the right, the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so God gave Jesus the authority, the right to give eternal life. And Jesus gives us the right, the authority, to come and become sons of his by believing on the name of Christ. So the Father is glorified because he's the one that gave Jesus the authority. Secondly, the Father is glorified because he's the one who gave to the Son the souls of men. It's an interesting concept, and it's found in verse 2 that he should give eternal life to as many as thou, the Father, hast given him. He's talking about himself, and he calls himself here, he is the Son, as thou hast given him. And that truth is something that we'll find throughout this high priestly prayer of, of Christ in John 17. In verse 6, we'll look ahead, unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Verse 6 again, and thou gavest them me. Verse 9, them which thou hast given me. Verse 11, those whom thou hast given me. And verse 12, those that thou gavest me. Now in our human limited understanding of things, we ask, is a person lost then because God does not give that person to the Son to be saved? Does God choose only a few for heaven? If so, is God responsible for man's unbelief? After all, Jesus said in John 6, no man can come except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In the same chapter, verse 65, he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. These verses teach us that God reaches out to save men who are lost in sin, men who cannot save themselves, and we are totally depraved. We cannot be, save ourselves in any way. But then there are verses that show us man's responsibility to believe, to receive Christ as Savior. We just looked at John 1.12 that says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. In 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul says, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants men to be saved. That's why Christ came to die for our sins. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. These verses of God's work in leading, drawing men to salvation and man having a responsibility to come to Christ are not in conflict with each other. Both doctrines are true 
Salvation is available for everyone. Whosoever will may come. And no one can ever say, I'm too lost. I'm not one that God has chosen. I can't be saved. The blood of Jesus Christ can save all who come to him. And so the invitation is to come. The eternal Godhead knows everyone who will call upon him. The Bible calls Christians his elect. It's a term that's used there, his chosen ones. You don't have to understand how both can be true, but you must agree that both are true. Great Donald Gray Barnhouse illustrated well, an American preacher of long ago, illustrated well, and you've heard it before, about the sign that's over the door of salvation. And the out, on the outside of that sign, it says, Whosoever will may come. And you walk through that door, and you accept Christ as your Savior, and you look back at the sign, and from the other side it says, Chosen from the foundation of the world. I don't understand it, but they're both true. Notice, the Father is glorified because he's the one who sent the Son. Verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal. Everyone wants to know, what must I do to be saved, as the Philippian jailer asked. Here's the answer in another verse. That they might know thee, the only true God. To know him is not just to come to a place where you mentally assent that uh, I, I look at creation, there must be a designer, they mu there must be a creator, there must be a God. The demons believe in God. They even, James 2.19 says, they even tremble. They respond to that belief. Godet writes this about the knowledge of God that signifies eternal life in this verse. Such knowledge is certainly not, in his thought, a purely rational fact. The scriptures always take the word no in a more profound sense. Well, this is to know him personally. There is a belief, too, that he is the only true God. That when you know Christ you know there is no other way of salvation. All paths are wrong paths. All other gods are false gods. And that they may know thee, the only true God, and, and I think the same verb applies here, that they may know Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Again, this is a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah. The one sent by God to save men from his sin. To know Jesus Christ means to believe that he is the Son of God who died in your place. To know Jesus Christ means to trust his work on Calvary to save you from your sin. To know Jesus Christ means to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. The human author recording this prayer is the Apostle John. He also wrote the inspired, word, inspired words about eternal life in 1 John, the epistle, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Is that not simple for us to understand? Do you know Christ? Have you accepted him as your Savior? 
John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Father is glorified because he is the one who gave Jesus authority to save. He's the one who gave the Son the souls of men. He's the one who sent his Son. And last, the Father is glorified because he is the one who gave the Son the work of redemption. And Jesus finished the work. In verse 4, Jesus prays, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that what he says the next day when he's hanging on the cross? It is finished. Oh, he says it now because he knows that it is certain. It's as good as done. The glory they shared as members of the Godhood are given in verse 5. Jesus prayed at the end of, of verse 1, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. And now he describes this, this glory that was there from eternity past. Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Oh, what another testimony through Scripture of the eternality of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He shares the attributes of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are all co-equal. John established that fact at the outset of the book when we began in, in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. By him, whom? By the word, by Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, compares the word of God at creation to the work of God in salvation. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's talking about creative work in Genesis, hath shined in our hearts, that's salvation's work, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed these words to the Father in heaven. He prayed this prayer at the hour of his death. He prayed for the Father to glorify him as he glorified the Father. And when you think about prayers and answers to prayer, you look at this prayer, and God answered it. The Father was glorified. Jesus finished the work. Salvation was accomplished by his death on the cross. Jesus was glorified in that the Father gave him the authority to grant eternal life. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And people are being saved to the glory of God. This request is being answered from every century of human history. People have responded to the gospel and come to take Christ as their Savior. From every tribe and nation around the world, souls are being redeemed. Do you have eternal life? John 17, 3, and this is life eternal, 
that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Have you trusted him as your personal Savior? Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this prayer of our Savior. We're thankful that it has been answered, that you glorified the Father in your obedience to him, that he glorified you in your resurrection and exaltation, and that people are being saved again for your glory. We thank you that the invitation of salvation is still available to all who will come and receive Christ today. And if there's one here who is listening to this message or is here in this room who has not ever responded to that invitation to come, I trust today that they will, that you would draw them to yourself in saving faith, that they would put their trust in you alone for their salvation, and we'll give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.